Well, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. Um, the midterm election is over. Um, we want to provide at least uh, some background information on where we are and wh what happened in rural America um, in terms of the vote in the midterm election. And I have two amazing guests today. One is Doug Usher, and Doug has spent the last two decades building insights that have helped change, I think, the strategic trajectory of major corporations, industries, associations, and political campaigns. But probably more importantly for our purpose, um, Doug has spent the last two years, two and a half years, analyzing the rural vote for One Country Project and has provided, I think, some amazing insights. You've seen them already on our summits. You've seen him. If you follow this podcast, Doug is no stranger to this podcast. And um, I really look forward to hearing some of his initial takeaways. I'm sure that we are going to be doing, Doug, a, a bigger deep dive and a bigger follow-up, especially in those key states. And so, I, and, and a newcomer to our podcast, Jessica Piper, who, if you're like me and you're a, a, a rural vote and, uh, you know, what's happening in the middle of the country to Democratic uh, candidates, um, you have followed her on Twitter. You have followed her, her campaign as she has tried to um, give us a flavor of what it's like to be a local candidate in a state like Missouri. Um, running for as as a Democrat, and um, I am I know you will find her insights really really important. She is a tenured teacher. Uh, education was a big part of her campaign, and I and I will tell you this: um, in North Dakota, as I'm sure is true in Missouri, about 40% of our teachers want to quit. And I know that that's been an issue that Jessica wants to address. It's an issue that hasn't gotten enough national attention. And certainly we think the uh, Democratic Party uh, speaks to these concerns. So we're going to start with you, Doug. Um, what do we know? How important was the rural vote uh, for the margins that Fetterman received? He had one, uh, one slogan, every county, every vote. Um, we really like that slogan here at One Country. Um, uh, did did he see some progress in in uh, rural Pennsylvania? Did we see progress other places? Where did we do well, and where did we uh, again ignore the rural vote to our peril? It's a great question, and, and thank you for having me, Senator. I think that when the votes are finally counted for this election, we have everything in the books. What we're going to see is what we saw with Biden. That is the incredible dissent that Democrats were having among rural voters, basically following through the Obama term and into the Clinton-Trump election, flattened out with the Biden election. And I think when the votes are finished in Pennsylvania, we're gonna see a return in rural areas. And if you look at some of those great graphics from the New York Times and other places that show arrows, you'll see blue arrows all over Pennsylvania. And what I think this is demonstrating to us over and over again, I just wish, where Democrats took as strong a stance as you do, Senator, on this, is that we can't make up for these ridiculous declining margins in rural areas just by racking up the vote in, in, in traditionally blue areas of, of urban parts of the state. So... Uh, well, I, it's I, interesting. And there's been a lot of discussion, Doug, about the failure of polling 
Um, I've been out there maybe defending some of the legitimate polls uh, to the chagrin of, of many people. I think you, when we talk about margin of error, there is margin of error. But, you know, what was amazing to me about the Fetterman race is at the in the end, what was supposed to be a nail biter by Pennsylvania standards. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a Shapiro level, you know, um, uh, uh, margin. But it definitely was a decent margin for Fetterman, who was supposed to either not win or win only by, you know, a couple thousand votes. Right. I mean, I think without question, the chattering class overvalued what they perceived to be a bad uh, uh, debate um, performance by uh, now Senator or soon to be Senator Fetterman. Um, I think that you're completely right that what people were most surprised at was where Fetterman was going to be a great candidate, which is all over the state. And what's interesting is that, look, he holds some views that are to the left of, of you know, many Democrats or of the Democratic Party, but he's different from others in that he holds values and beliefs that are core to Pennsylvanians across the state. And they recognize that in him and they responded. Well, he, he didn't exactly look like a Democratic candidate either, did he? <laughs> I well, I mean, on the one hand, he looks like a tattooed hipster. On the other hand, he looks like he could be, you know, going to Wawa, you know, in, in a yeah, or, or, you know, joining a biker gang. Right. Yeah, fair and, enough. And, you know, is- I, I think I think that had we talk a little bit about that, but I think that the fact that he talked with great respect for what was happening in rural Pennsylvania and his understanding of rural Pennsylvania. We've been saying all along, you can't win unless you show up. And and having a, a, a on election night, the first, almost the first words out of his mouth was, you know, every county, every vote. Again, sending an important signal to those places, especially to Democrats in those places that I'm not going to forget you. I think what's really interesting, I'll, I'll add a little something to, to what you're saying, which is totally, you have to show up, but you have to show you're one of them. And showing up is part of that, you know, but you can't show up, you know, and just show up in your, in your Escalade and, and drop, <laughs> dry, jump into a county fair and eat the food. I think what's really interesting about his strategy was the Oz, the anti-Oz being not from the state probably played much better in rural areas and got him votes that another candidate couldn't have gotten if, if there was another Republican on the ballot. Yeah, I, I mean, he, he, he exploited a lot of errors um, by the, his Republican opponent, Dr. Oz, uh, uh, you know, really did a good job, especially on social media. So where, when you've looked at the rural vote, Doug, um, just some initial analysis, because I'm sure you and I will be back here um, to talk about that deep dive that you're going to do. Just off the top of your head, where were you surprised um, uh, going away from Pennsylvania with performance in rural uh, America by Democrats? I mean, I think you look at Nevada, I think that 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 Cortez Masto did okay in rural areas. I think she's going to turn out to be one who won in spite of her performance in rural areas, not because of it. And I think if you take a look at Wisconsin, I think the real contrast is going to be Wisconsin versus Pennsylvania. And that is where, while I think polling did a decent job, and I've got probably more reservations about polling than a pollster should, um, I will say that. Wisconsin was written off 
because of polling that was there and it really shouldn't have been. But on top of that, Barnes, while a good candidate, I think didn't put himself in position to win in rural areas and may not have been the candidate to bring them over the finish line. So yeah, I, I think that if you look at those two states contrast, that's where you're going to see the big difference in the real lessons. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, Barnes, who was a um, uh, defund the police, arguably defund the police, kind of stood beside uh, several positions that may have been very popular among certain people in Milwaukee, not so popular um, in Green Bay, right, where you can pick up rural votes in that that area. But, you know, Wisconsin's interesting because they've had a fairly aggressive Democratic Party. I will say Tammy Baldwin will be looking at all of these results very closely as she goes into her reelect. And, um, you know, one thing that that uh, uh, I would warn uh, Republicans planning on running against Tammy. She's a very, very strategic and good politician. So it'll be interesting. So I want to bring you into the conversation, Jessica. Um, explain to us what motivated you to run. I mean, you you frequently said during, as I followed your campaign, that that you didn't have really high expectations that you were going to win, but you thought it was just so important um, for your community, for the people of your district, but really for the democracy that you get into this. So how did you get motivated to um, to uh, run in what was really a tough, tough district? Uh, well, the final straw for me was going to vote in 2020 and not having a Democrat to vote for. Um, there was no one to represent my progressive values or others in my community. And I thought, you know what, if no one else is going to run, it's going to be me. Um, and I'd been paying attention to politics for a while. I was a teacher for 16 years. Um, and just looking around and seeing the what my community was struggling with, uh, the, problem, the problems that our kids were having, um, poverty, lack of you know, access to health care and that sort of thing, I just thought, it's enough. And so I jumped in. You jumped in. And tell us what happened after you jumped in with your family and with your life and how your life changed. Well, everything changed. Um, the first thing I did was call the Democratic Party and they had never heard of me. So they basically said, you should run for dog catcher first. <laughs> and, and what's funny is after a few months, they called me and said, hey, would you run for auditor? <laughs> so, um, um, it was just, you know, it's really hard um, in a small community. There's 480 people in my town. Um, my daughter goes to school with 17 other kids in the fifth grade. So everybody knows everybody. Um, and it wasn't the easiest thing that I've ever done, but I know that it was worth it. And I still believe it was worth it. And, and, um, you're, you were concerned about, uh, your livelihood, concerned about your daughter being teased in school, um, concerned about all the things that, and I, and I raised this not to depress anyone, but I will tell you, um, if we go out and try and recruit women like you, incredibly talented caring individuals. Um, and the, one of the main reasons why they will repeatedly say no is because I don't want to do that to my family. I don't want to risk this to my family. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that the risks are there, but also to acknowledge that a lot of great patriots like you actually take those risks and, and weather the storm. So tell us a little bit about what happened to your family. 
it's um, it's very difficult to do it in a place like I am. Um, I started being more politi- politically active after 2016, um, and I ran into some issues with a few parents. Um, I was a tenured teacher and COVID happened and we were coming back with little mitigation. So I went to Kansas City and I protested with NEA. I ended up being on the news in Kansas City. And three days later, my husband lost his job. He was a teacher at the same school. He was not tenured. Um, And so that was something massive that happened. Um, I have adult children who, you know, haven't always been angels. They've never done anything awful. But, you know, just thinking about, you know, what could come out about, um, my kids, you know, they make things up. And so I was just terrified, especially in the last few weeks, every day when I opened the mailbox, I was terrified of a mailer or something that may have come out against me or anyone in my family. Um, Knocking doors is not the most fun thing to do um, out here. And I did knock doors. We knocked thousands of doors. Uh, My son is infantry trained. He's in college and he was knocking doors and a man came to the door with a gun. Um, I had a lady throw my literature back at me. I had a lot of people that were very friendly, but would say, hey, um, no offense, but I'm a Christian and I can't vote for Democrats. Um, And so it's difficult. I'm used to online um, trolls. But when it comes down to people in your own community, people you taught their children and they're saying nasty things, it's a lot. Um, And I know a lot of it. My district has never elected a woman and they haven't elected a Democrat in 30 years. I kind of knew what I was going against, but politics are so different than teaching. I was, you know, I always taught around women. It's mostly women in my profession. And the first couple bits of blatant sexism in my face were so, it was just confusing. I had never really dealt with that before. (laughs) I mean, people, the first thing I met a legislator and he said, well, you have a young daughter who would take care of her if you're in Jeff City. And I thought, my husband, would would you ask him that question? You know, just constant. Yeah. Well, let me tell you my story. When I ran for governor in 2020, I would get people who asked about my family two different ways. They would say, how old are your children? And I'd say they're 10 and 14. And, you know, it's a challenging. My daughter is a swimmer and my son's, you know, likes to ride unicycle. And, you know, so you just have those conversations or they would ask you, how old are your children? And you knew, right, the big bubble, bad mom, bad mom right here. And and I had the advantage because I would say they're the same age as my opponent, John Hoven's children. (laughs) By the way, did you ask him? (laughs) Oh, my. Right. And and people would literally flinch backward because it never it it never came to them that that's a question that they only ask women. And and I. I, I I mean, I, I, I could give you many examples of legislators who who um, have confronted women running for the legislature who have confronted that. And then even when they get elected and serve are are challenged repeatedly by more conservative, um, traditional uh, gender role uh, members of, of the legislature. So even if you had gotten elected, that would not have gone away. I, I'm afraid to tell you. But but let's talk a little bit about what you heard when you knocked those doors. Uh, you know, the, the, the one thing that you said, which was, I can't vote for you because I'm a Christian and you're a Democrat. How did you respond to that? 
Well, uh, the one, the first time it happened, I had my campaign manager with me and I started to go into a conversation and she said, Jess, let's just keep walking. <laughs> um, but I was born and raised um, a Southern Baptist. I mean, I've read the, the Bible. I went to camps. I went to church. I went to church three times a week. Um, so I don't understand um, where that comes from. It was confusing to me, um, but it, I heard it over and over again. And I had some, you know, those people were very friendly to me, but they were point blank. I, I will not vote for a Democrat. And so what you hear people in Missouri government, you hear a lot of people talk about CRT or trans kids. And I never heard any of that stuff at the door. In fact, I heard very little. People were unlikely to speak to me. They didn't really talk. They would take my literature and say, thank you. But I'm in an area where no one has seen a Democrat on their door in decades. They don't know we exist without, you know, horns or something. So um, they usually didn't talk a lot. They would just take the lit and go. Well, let's go back to this idea that if you're a Democrat, you can't be a Christian um, and vice versa. I actually got that question. I was speaking at Girl State and they said, well, you're, you're Catholic how do you square your religion with your politics? And I said, oh, I think I'm a Democrat because I, because I was a Catholic. I think and they just kind of reared back. And I said, These are, this is how I was raised, to believe that you help people, that we're all in this together, that we live uh, Jesus's uh, teachings, which is to feed the hungry. And, you know, man, you know so, so you go through kind of those things that we learned as Christians and as in my case, as a Catholic and, and people kind of look at you like, well, that, that doesn't make sense to them. And, and when did we get to the point where we've lost kind of the, the social justice aspects of Christianity? Um, and it, it now just has become more of the kind of judgment Christianity, if I can, if I can put it that way. Well, like I said, I was born and raised in the church, and I think my son was a few years old, so it was probably in the early 1990s, maybe 95 or 96, I went to church, and um, it was Southern Baptist, and I was in the pews, and our pastor was talking about going to Walmart and seeing a homeless man uh, buy dog food for his dog, Um, and then that same man walked down the street and came to the church and asked for food for himself, and the pastor said, I told him we're not a soup kitchen. And at that moment in the, you know, in the nineties, I mean, I just started crying and I got up and left. Um, And I really didn't return to the church after that, because for me, that was when social justice was out. Everybody pull yourself up by your bootstraps, whether you have them or not. Um, And this religion isn't for you if you can't do these things. Um, And so I know some very good Christians. I just went with some to, um, a meeting and it was fantastic, but my religion has changed. The one that I knew and the one that I grew up with is um, is now the, the church of Trump. And I know this because my parents um, voted for Trump. Um, and so my family, I'm the black sheep. Uh, everybody else is, you know, a conservative. So let's talk about education and the importance of that issue in rural America. As I, as I said, when we kind of opened this up, um, Public education is in crisis, um, especially in rural America. Uh, Smaller class sizes, a a diminishment of of, um, 
economic uh, support for education, the complexities post-COVID, um, and, and teachers are burned out, I mean, and leaving in droves. So when you talked about rural education, and I, I, I follow you in the work that you've been doing to sound the alarm about um, vouchers and what that means for rural America, let, let's talk a little bit about this issue of, of school choice and why it is that it doesn't work in rural America. Well, first, you need to know that Missouri is 50th in teacher pay and 49th in educational funding. So we are at the very bottom. And like I always say, you don't get to the bottom without actively trying to be there. Um, so we've had defunding of schools for about a decade. They lowered the uh, funding formula in 2017. And ever since then have been saying, hey, look, we're fully funding you know, education. You're like, you lowered the bar. They lowered the bar. You're not meeting it. Um, they didn't fully fund busing. So we're struggling out here. Um, and the big thing that is happening is there, we have 26% of Missouri schools on a four-day school week. Um, by next August, they're projecting 30% will be on a four-day school week. Um, there's a lot of schools in my area that have gone to this. And um, I can tell you, because I worked at one, it we lengthen the day a little bit, but it doesn't really matter because think of those little kids, you know, trying to concentrate until four o'clock every single day. And we all know as teachers, when you come in on Monday, you need to do a little review because they've lost something over the weekend. Well, now you're all the way to Tuesday. And by the way, why don't schools take off Friday? If you're a four day week, wouldn't you think it's Friday off? No, because that's when they play football. <laughs> so. Oh. Yeah. So, and, and good coaches know too, they, they practice five days a week. You don't have school five days a week, but you practice because you can't win against other teams if you're not practicing as much as they are. Now apply that logic to math and reading. It's the same thing. Our kids are getting less. Um, and so it's a huge issue. Vouchers and charter schools are absolutely taking money from the public school system. We just passed ESAs, which means that you can, you know, sponsor a kid and you can take off 30 or 40 or 50 percent. I'm not sure of the, the amount straight off your taxes, whatever, you, you know, you donated. Um, and so the thing is, though, in rural America, the closest choice school is 57 miles away from me. So you've defunded my school. I can't possibly get my daughter 57 miles away to me, you know, every single day. And especially the, the big point to me is because I had a child with um, severe dyslexia. He wouldn't he wouldn't have gotten in. They're not going to let a kid who doesn't do well on standardized tests be in their choice school or their private school because he's going to bring down the, you know, their data. Right. So these kids that have disabilities, physical, mental, social, emotional, they are left in defunded public schools. And I have been screaming it from the mountaintops for years. People are noticing, you noticed, but our legislators don't care. They are doing absolutely nothing but passing more and more vouchers, charters, that sort of thing. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you one other thing that, that really got to me is there is a, a group called the Missouri Federation for Children. It's a choice organization. And I talked to their director and I said, hey, Gene, Gene Evans, by the way, hey, Gene, what do you suppose you should do about kids out here, my kid that's in a rural school? And she said, well, I think virtual instruction and a tutor one day a week would work. You know, if we learned anything from the pandemic is that is absolutely the wrong direction. Yep. I mean, I, I think when the when the educational uh, uh, book is written on what happened in the pandemic, classrooms, socialization, kids in 
in classrooms is the way we teach kids. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, you know, and so much of uh, what, and that is just, it, it is so discouraging. You use the phrase ESAs. Could you just explain to the listeners what an ESA is? No, I'm going to have to define it. Scholarship. It's, it's a scholarship that someone can give to or gift to a family, maybe a family who can't afford it. And it's actually just a tax break. They use it as a tax break. So um, a lot of the people who, by the way, are in charge of, of that managing that money from the ESA accounts are also the ones who run the schools who benefit from the money. Um, and so it's a it's a just a massive grift and it's taking away from every single public school in Missouri. So why aren't more rural parents um, concerned? Why, why, why didn't you win? I mean, you just make so much sense. Explain to me why you think you didn't win. I didn't win because there are not enough Democrats in, in my district, and we knew that going in. I think our, you know, 1800 people at some point we think they may have been we don't have we don't register so we kind of have to guess you know who's who but about 1800 well i needed 7000 to win so <laughs> we knew it was going to be an uphill battle but when i would go to the doors and this is something that i wrote about um but that was so defeating to me i i talked to a mom whose schools had just gone to four days a week and i said um i'm a democrat and she said well i can't vote for you but she said i see you're a teacher and i said yes and my light bulb went on because I thought, this is it. She's going to say, please do something about four-day schools. And she didn't. She said, please bring prayer back in schools. And so that um, is what, you know, I'm dealing with is um, I think that a lot of rural folks, honestly, have gotten used to less. We've been sort of traumatized out here driving on roads that aren't suitable to drive on. um, And I think people are just used to it. They're used to less. And now, we're actually asking for less, but I was able to break through. You know, I got over 400 votes, uh, you know, more than the last person who ran, which, by the way, was in 2018. So it's just education. And I'll say this, too. Missouri always votes for uh, progressive ballot initiatives. And that, to me, was confusing. Well, they're expanding Medicaid. They're doing recreational weed. And still we have a GOP supermajority and a light bulb. I had a light bulb moment the other day because I was like, There's no D or R behind ballot initiatives. You have to read it and decide what's best for you. And it's always going to be a progressive policy. So, so you're in your judgment, if you didn't have to run as a Democrat um, and it was a nonpartisan office, uh, your chances would have been a lot better, right? A lot better. We toyed around with, I'm a Democrat, but I mean, you can run as an independent, you know, there's the Democrat brand is such a drag on rural candidates that I can't, I can't overstate that, Um, which is why I I always um, refer to myself as a dirt road Democrat, because I'm, you know, I don't take corporate money, you know, I believe in healthcare for all and, you know, um, but we were able to move the needle a little, Uh, like Doug was talking about that, New York Times map for Missouri was lovely, seeing those blue arrows go across, except for the boot hill, which went even more red. But um, the Democrat brand is very tarnished in my neck of the woods. So, you know, we get to that point of how do you fix it? Education, talking to people. 
Um, I raised an incredible amount of money. Um, I did everything I could. And, and that's why people are like, what could you have done differently? And I can't think of anything other than being a white Republican man. I, I really, <laughs> because we just did all the things and um, we moved in four points. And so that's just, you know, it's a long game. The Republicans played it. We can play it too. Um, but like you said, it's difficult to find candidates who are willing to give up their life. I can't go back to teaching um, because of what I am. I can't go back to teaching because people would say, I don't want my kid in her class. She's So obviously- what are you going to do now? Well, I've got a lot of people in my inbox <laughs> who are, you know, ready to move um, with what I've started. So. You know, it's so interesting because, um, you know, you think about all of the people in the United States Congress who have repeatedly um, enabled a somebody who literally led an insurrection against this country. And what do they risk? They risk, you know, re-election. Um, look what you risk for this country and for your community. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, we need to redefine patriotism. We need to redefine, you know, kind of how we, how we look at people who, who do really brave things against really bad odds. Yeah. The odds were always against me and I knew it and my husband knew it. And the minute I told him, I said, I think I'm going to quit teaching and run. He was like, how can I help? Which is just amazing because I got him fired I got him fired from his teaching job. He's got another one now, but, you know, he can't talk about being married to me very often. You know, it's not in mixed company anyway, because. That's By what- mixed company, you mean in with re- with Republicans, right? <laughs> exactly. With 75% of our district. <laughs> so, Doug, let's bring you back in um, with Jessica. You just heard what we've heard and and kind of felt all across the country in states like North Dakota, South Dakota, Missouri, you know, um, how much, you know, and and you're, you don't look at this from the standpoint of legislative districts, which those of us who have served in state government are always concerned about because that's where the bread and butter is. That's how we started losing and redefining the democratic brand in rural America. But when you look at kind of top-down presidential races, you look at um, gubernatorial races and, and races for the Senate, um, how, 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 how big of a problem is what Jessica just described across the country? Uh, it's a massive problem. And to, to just give you some perspective, what happens when you lose rural voters is you lose entire states and they go, and and Senator, we've talked about this before, you create, um, if you will, a spiral of death, which is to say there's no blue anywhere in a state and it's a small state. Well, where's the, where does that impact get felt? It gets felt in the Senate and it gets felt in the presidential election. Joe Biden is the first president since Kennedy to be elected with less than a majority of states. He got 25 states. That hasn't happened since Kennedy won. And that's no surprise because you lose entire states. And as you try to look at the map for Senate and for president, you then write off a large chunk of voters. But I think what, 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 what Jessica's talking about here is just so important. 
Because what ends up happening, I'm, I'm not just in the polling game, but I'm also in the persuasion world and communications world. And the fact that people's messaging tends to be so cartoonish about Democrats. So for example, you're having this education conversation, but the education conversation that's happening on Fox News and on Twitter is about kitty litter in classrooms and about CRT. And not at all. And, a, and, and, and just for those people who don't know the acronym, Acronym. The acronym. Um, acronym. That too. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the CRT is critical race theory. That is not taught in Missouri. It's not taught in North Dakota. But yet it becomes a political talking point for, um, you know, uh, for the right uh, related to public education. And then when you don't have a, a Democrat that you can relate to coming to your door... I mean, Jessica, you would succeed if you're building on what's going on in their community. The thing about political campaigns is you can't change the ground when you're in a political campaign. That had to happen before. And then you win based on that. And so the hard work really is a presence, right? It's not about polling and ads. That just doesn't do it. These things are only a sliver on top of, of the ground. And when when it becomes a team sport, when it becomes about voting for the for the shirt as opposed to the person, and the shirts, you know, you you kind of look at it like college football, right? Like you you can show a Michigan fan how much Ohio State is corrupt and they're evil, etc. And 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 Ohio, they're not going to change teams. Yeah, that's definitely what I ran into. <laughs> Well, you know, but but it also is people had a preconceived notion about who you were because you were willing to say you were a Democrat, Jessica, you you that that you believed, you know, whatever, whatever uh, they were told the Democratic Party stood for, rather than we stand for a, 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 a retirement that is with dignity. We've supported Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. We stand for health care. Um, you know, we've expanded the states that have expanded health care, like you said, like Missouri, through ballot initiatives, have saved rural hospitals on um, places that haven't. Rural hospitals have have failed. We stand with the uh, uh, farm program that helps farmers. We stand for public education. All of those things don't matter because we're, we've lost kind of the cultural connection um, as Democrats with rural America. And, and, you know, I, that, that's something that we can't, we can't re reconnect ourselves to rural communities unless you're there every day doing it, as Doug said. Right. And I mean, I live in my community. I shop in my community. We're also small farmers. I mean, we have cat, you know, cows and chickens and hogs. Um, but People, it was, it was so, the strangest part was people turning on me who knew me really well the moment I started running as a Democrat. Um, people, you know, like I said, I had their kids in class and they would say terrible things. And I just thought, we did football together. We, you know, ran the concession stand together. How can you think these things? And I would have people at the door say, you seem really well-intentioned and like, you, you know, you know the issues, but I just can't vote for you because you're a Democrat. Um, and I would say, you know, like I said, it's a long game, but it's just so difficult when you're in a tiny community to try to do this. 
Yeah, I, and I've, I've, I've grappled with this issue because a lot of what we talk about is losing, you know, by a smaller margin, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and, and a lot of these places were always difficult for Democrats, even when Democrats won statewide races, um, which they did. I mean, Jay Nixon and I were attorneys general together, the mm-hmm. most recent Democratic governor in Missouri. Claire and I are dear, dear friends. Um, and uh, would talk about this issue a lot because we spend a lot of time in rural America. Um, but but by the same token, it's just it it just becomes so difficult when the cake is baked, yeah. when when uh, there the people just automatically assume this is who you are, and and you know people love to talk about oh it's all Fox News' fault, but you know. Why is it that Fox News has dominated? Because we've given up. We've we. It, it's kind of like I, I liken it to rural electrification. You know, um, you go where it's easier, which means you know uh, it's easier to get votes when you or to go door to door when you only have to walk a city block, right? But if you have to drive a county mile, it's not as easy, and the last mile is always tougher. They've systematically, um, you know, sent messages that that I think by they, I mean, the Republican Party, you know, got, has gotten their message out. Um, and it's a message of fear. You know, they don't Democrats don't respect you. We do respect you. I mean, we could go through the whole list of of grievances, but we haven't done. I mean, we you know, we can't control what the Republican Party does. We can only control what we do. And it seems like we've abandoned uh, folks like you um, uh, kind of, you know, in a way that uh, will will continue to erode and create uh, a division in this country. The huge, the huge irony here is that the 400 votes you're talking about, Jessica, is going to be the difference in the Senate race. Right in the U.S. Senate race, these races at the state level are so close, mm-hmm. and they make all the difference in the world. And if there were ten of you or twelve of you in a state, that could be enough to push uh, a statewide candidate. And it's really you that's doing the spade work, without which you can't get there. Right, and I, that's so important to understand. I think 40% of the state house seats went unopposed. They went to Republicans because we just, because of the experiences, you know, that are likely to happen. But I'll say this, and I hope that people aren't just completely without hope. I was walking down a street in Albany and uh, it's Albany, Missouri. And a lady was, had her baby on her hip and came running down her steps And she said, I'm going to vote for you. She said, I'm so worried about bodily autonomy. And the woman across the street from her came out and she had my sign in her in her yard in this tiny little town standing up. And I had a super volunteer over there who put 200 signs in this tiny town. And I can't tell you how many people wrote to me and called me and texted me and just said, I just feel better knowing that there's more of us that we can, you know, we're not scared to put your sign out. And I think going forward, that's a massive thing. We've found each other. We, we're networking. We're not losing each other. So the next person who comes along has that and is ready to go. Well, okay. That's a tell. The next person who comes along? <laughs> I, 
I have uh, said I've I've been approached a couple times, and I'm not ruling out running in the future. But I don't ever see myself running for the first district again because I know it is such a long game. I, I've done it, and I know it. Um, and hopefully, I can bring in someone that's younger and someone that's better than me and can do better than me and reach people that I couldn't reach. A man, and <laughs> and maybe he could bring in eight hundred. You know, so you have your kids. That's right. Your adult kids, they can run. <laughs> well, I, 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 I want to just, number one, tell you that your advocacy for rural Democrats was just one of, for me, one of the highlights of the midterm. And I didn't want it to go without some exposure for the project that we're doing, which is One Country Project. We'd love to get you uh, more involved in the work that we're doing because you bring, you know, we, we have state legislators, um, which we're very proud of because we're trying to figure out kind of what happens in each one of these um, states, not, not looking top down, not flying in with a big message um, on election day, but how do we kind of change the narrative? Um, and and uh, we, we watched your race with a lot of excitement. I think you didn't ever mislead us. You told us from the very beginning how tough it was going to be. Um, uh, but but we, we got a lot of hope from the work that you did, Jessica. A lot of hope. Thank you. And that's what I hope everyone gets from this. And I hope that next time we don't have 40% of the seats, that we, we can compete. And the Republicans were forced to spend money out here. They haven't spent money out here in 30 years. They had to drop, I know, $60,000 to my opponent. And, and that's something. And if we did it in all of those races, they would struggle. Well, you know, we on, on a macro level, you know, there was a lot of discussion about what happened in uh, North Carolina mm -hmm. with uh, Justice Beasley, what happened in Florida, what happened in states that we, Ohio, but you know what? The Republicans were forced to defend those states because we ran great candidates. And, you know, um, they didn't win, unfortunately. I would have loved to have seen every one of them win, uh, especially Tim Ryan in Ohio. But um, he ran, it made a difference in Ohio, made a difference uh, in North Carolina, where we picked up two, I think, two congressional seats, right, Doug? and uh, stopped a supermajority in the legislature. If she had been on the ballot, would that have happened? And so my, my to, to everybody listening, and, and we have some great supporters of One Country Project, you know, that is, is taking a look at what, uh, what we need to do, not, you know, beginning in, the, in 2024, but what we need to do right now. What do we need to do right now? Uh, to change the narrative and to to build the support for candidates, wouldn't it have been nice if uh, if Jessica had had a list of um, uh, three thousand supporters that she could build from? Instead, she just started on on her very own building that list. What 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 would we know about um, uh, about the community um, that we could use um, to speak to the issues of the community. And if we can win in rural Missouri, guess what? We can win Missouri. Yeah. If we can win in rural North Dakota, we can win North Dakota. Um, and, and uh, you know, the theory of one country project is, uh, a lot of people said, why don't you call it the rural whatever project? I said, no, 
What I'm trying to tell you is what they want in rural Missouri is really substantially no different than what they want in New York. They want a safe place for their families to live. They want clean air. They want clean water. They want great education for their kids. And they want to be able to make a living and retire with dignity. And, and that's the universal that the Democratic Party believes in when we believe in investing in people. And, and um, it's, it's the race that you ran, Jessica. It's the race that the issues you talked about, dignity of work, of, of uh, uh, the kids are our future. And my concern is the, the redder rural America gets, the more our kids won't, won't want to live here. And, and the drain will continue. And so this is an economic imperative for rural America as well. I agree with you. That's what we talk a lot about our district shrinking. And that's why I can't even keep my own kids here. As soon as they go to the university or they go to work, it's straight to Kansas City or straight to St. Louis. So um, we had to incorporate in redistricting a bigger county because we are just shrinking. In fact, the biggest... Uh, uh, voting pool in my district is the university. They, there's 8,000 kids there. That's the biggest community in my entire district. Wow. Well, listen, Jessica, stay in touch. We just, um, and continue to talk about the work that you're doing, continue to educate. I know you have a lot of followers. How many followers do you have on Twitter? Well, I, I have 60,000 on there, but TikTok is really where it's at. I have almost 200,000 on there. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. I mean, did you do it? And, 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 you know, kudos to you for understanding the value of, of, um, of social media and using it as a force for good. Yeah, that's what I said. I was uh, a cheer and, and dance coach and I had to raise money somehow. <laughs> so <laughs> it translates well to politics. <laughs> well, you, you, you wouldn't, you earned every one of those dollars by being an honest, earnest, hardworking candidate. And uh, let's not, let's not let your momentum end there. Uh, yep. No way. Well, I'm telling you, we can't build back uh, a rural vote without great candidates like Jessica. And so, Jessica, thank you for growing your base. Uh, 400 votes may sound like uh, it wasn't certainly enough, but it was a big victory um, uh, for uh, the work that you put into this race. So thank you so much.